Last Monday, May 20th, was World Bead Day. Bees have been in the news a lot the past few years, both for the critical problems they've been facing and probably related to that, our increasing awareness of how important they are, not only intrinsically, but to our own survival. My guest today, urban beekeeper Derek Garnier, has kept, beer, be, has kept beers for years, uh, has kept bees for years and beer for years. Uh, we're going to talk all about bees, why they're important, how to keep them, how to make honey, and much, much more. So don't go anywhere. Matthew Felix on air starts now. Welcome to Matthew Felix on air, people who create, people who make a difference, coming to you from WordSpace Studios in San Francisco, California. So hopefully all of you or some of you or any of you, as far as I'm concerned, saw that for some reason having issues streaming on Facebook today and no issues on YouTube. So I was, I've just spent the past hour and a half panicking, trying to figure out what was wrong on my end. And then Derek, my guest today, showed up and said, well, maybe it's not on your end. And I thought, oh, that hadn't even occurred to me. And so he said, why don't we try YouTube? I'm going to give him all the credit for this because he saved my life and tried it on YouTube and no issues. And I'm also, so I'm kind of excited to try YouTube because I never have before. And uh, so anyway, apologies if there was any confusion, if anyone went to Facebook and hopefully the post is clear enough and the link to get over here to YouTube is, is clear enough and all of that. But that is the background for why I'm on YouTube for the first time. So. A busy hour and a half, but a busy couple of weeks, a busy couple of months. On Wednesday, I sent out my first newsletter in over two months and uh, describing what I've been up to to my subscribers. So if you're wondering what you might have missed out on, uh, you can subscribe to my newsletters at matthewfelix.com slash subscribe. On Thursday, I, uh, I added a new episode to my Porcelain Travels podcast. That episode is the recording of my live reading on May 5th at the Stranger Than Fiction reading series. And I also uploaded four additional episodes to the Porcelain Travels podcast of live readings that are taken, actually not live readings, but rather excerpts from my one-man show that I did in, month, in, um, Mar in March at the Marsh here in San Francisco. So uh, over the next two months, every two weeks, there will be a new episode to my Porcelain Travels podcast, which I hadn't updated for probably a year. And I wasn't even necessarily planning on, on adding episodes. But I realized I had that live material and they were some of most of them are stories that I hadn't already published to the podcast. So I thought uh, that'd be a good idea to to add some more content there. Speaking of podcasts, this week was a flurry of scheduling for this podcast. Uh, next week, June 2nd, my guest will be Ernest White II. Ernest was one of my co-presenters at Litwings in Paris, and he has a new travel show that is going live uh, later this year on PBS called Fly Brother. And he has been the past week or 10 days, however long the Cannes Film Festival is, that's where he's been for the past week or week and a half. And so he will just be back from that. So we'll talk about his new show that's coming out on PBS. We'll talk about maybe a little bit about his, his Cannes Film Festival experience and about travel and lots more. Because I don't even know if I said that his show, Fly Brother, it's, it's all about travel. It's a travel show that will be out on PBS. So really looking forward to having him on the show. On June 16th, so two weeks after that, I will have, uh, or my guest will be Rachel Howard. Her debut novel, so Rachel uh, writes fiction, personal essays, memoir, and dance critique. And uh, her debut novel, The Risk of Us, is just out, and it's garnering really strong praise. Her first book was a memoir called The Lost Night, uh, about which she was interviewed by Ira Glass on This American Life. And her work has appeared in O Magazine, in the New York Times Magazine, in the Los Angeles Review of Books, and on and on and on. And I met Rachel, uh, she was at The Stranger Than, she also presented at The Stranger Than Fiction uh, reading series that I read at a couple weeks ago. And then I saw her a second time after that, and, uh, and I said, you know, I'd really love to have you on the show, and she was up for it. So really looking forward uh, to having her on the show and also to reading her book between now and then. And that again, as you see on screen, if you're watching is called the risk of us. The last show that I will talk about is on June 30th. And I'm really excited about this show as well. I've wanted to have uh, the guide dogs for the blind on for quite a while. I babysit or house sit or uh, pet sit uh, this pooch that you see again, if you're watching, if you're listening, um, you might have, may have seen him on my Instagram feed, but anyway, 
Finn was uh, was is a Labrador who was uh, part of the Guide Dogs for the Blind uh, program, but they determined that he was more suited to other an, a different life path, and they call that a career change. So Finn had a career change. Uh, so I have a relationship with this dog who was part of the Guide Dogs program, and then in San Rafael, I spent a lot of time up there. That's actually where the Guide Dogs for the Blind are based. So I've seen them training their dogs um, for for years, and so I just thought that would be an interesting show. So anyway. That is going to be my June uh, 30th show, and the CEO and president, Christine Benninger, will be on the show. So I'm really excited that she was up for that and can't wait to learn more about that organization and all, all the great things that they do. Okay, no doubt lots more that I could say, but um, let's go to this quick message from my host and sponsor, Wordspace Studios, and then we'll be back to talk with urban beekeeper, Derek Garnier. A quick thanks to Wordspace Studios in San Francisco for sponsoring Matthew Felix on Air. Wordspace's mission is to bring together writers and thinkers of all ages and experiences. Wordspace will soon be offering creative writing workshops, a literary book club, and guided writing groups. And Wordspace is already offering writing residencies. They are submission-based, and they provide writers with room and board for up to one month. To find out more, you can email info at wordspacestudios.com. During the week, Derek Garnier is an entrepreneur in the internet communications and technology space. His current business passion involves building communications infrastructure to bring education and economic development to underprivileged rural and Native American lands. That's a project or a uh, probably a show in and of itself that would be really interesting. Uh, but anyway, on weekends, that's not what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about what he does on weekends today, which is uh, for the past six years, he has focused on beekeeping. And specifically, he keeps bees in the Oakland Hills, which for those of you who are not local to San Francisco, is on the other side of the San Francisco Bay. And on weekends in late July, you can find Derek at a booth in the East Bay with his grandkids selling honey and talking bees. This summer, Derek will be combining his technology background and uh, beekeeping to launch a new website with the world's first bee cam so that followers can get a glimpse of what happens inside a live working hive, which I think is really, really cool. And I'm looking forward not only to talking about that today, but actually seeing it when it does go live. So welcome, Derek. Thank you, Matt. My savior. Again, <laughs> thank you, everyone. Please thank Derek for thinking to go to YouTube. I was so caught up in the whole Facebook debacle that it wouldn't have even occurred to me. So I just mentioned in the intro that uh, this, I think I said Monday or Wednesday. I can't remember what day, but anyway, it was World Bee Day last mm -hmm. this week. Did you? Was there a big celebration at your house? Is that a big holiday for you? It's it's almost as big as Bastille Day. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, so it's a huge one. Uh, well, I just want to throw out that World Bee Day, so I looked it up on Wikipedia because I had never heard of it, and I didn't hear about it until the end of the day. It is celebrated on May 20th, and on this day, it's the birthday of a Slovenian, Anton Jansa, a pioneer of beekeeping who was born in 1734, purposes to acknowledge the role of bees and other pollinators for the ecosystem. And again, it was Slovenia that proposed the holiday, which... Uh, was just ratified or whatever in 2017. So it's actually a recent addition to our, our holiday calendar. People who are interested, especially if you speak Slovenian, although it's in English as well, worldbeeday.org. And so bees have been in the news. There's another thing I want to mention uh, quickly, just with regards to the news and bees, which is the whole, did you see the Notre Dame thing? About how yes. um, there was an article, the bees, so there are three hives on top of Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. And containing, I'm going to cheat and use a UK Guardian article here, three hives containing more than 180,000 bees in total were found intact on the cathedral's roof despite the devastating blaze. So that was pretty exciting that they survived. And then I guess it turns out beekeeping on rooftops is one of Paris's best kept secrets. This again is still from the UK Guardian. Besides Notre Dame, hives are also kept atop the roofs of other notable structures such as the Opera Derek Garnier, Musée d'Orsay, and the Grand Palais. More than 700 hives are kept across the city, which probably explains why I got stung three times while I was there. All right. But anyway, so those are just some things in the news recently that I thought um, I thought were pretty interesting related to bees. But I want to know how and when and why you got interested in bees and whether it was you went you know straight into beekeeping or it was something else that got you interested in bees themselves and it, that led to beekeeping. Or how did you kind of get started in the uh, the the. The, the bee world, if you in, will. In the bee world. In the bee so, world, yes. I'd always been interested in insects, right? One of those okay. kids that plays with every bug they find uh -huh. and just amazed at life in general uh -huh. at, at a microscopic bug level. Yeah. 
But what ended up happening was we had colony collapse several years back. And that was an event that was devastating all around the world. All of these huge bee populations, millions upon millions of bees were dying and no one knew why. Yep. That coincided exactly at the same time when I finished Michael Pollan's book, Omnivore's Dilemma. Uh-huh. And he started talking about monocultures. He was talking about how pesticides were killing these farms and whatnot. And it very much occurred to me that regional or local level is generally much better than large scale. doesn't mm -hmm. matter what it is. It's right. generally better. So I started doing research. I started taking a look and saying, what actually is involved? First question I always get is how expensive is it? Which we'll so talk look, about. We'll talk about that. Yep. But looking at what are the logistics of it? Where do I even get bees, et cetera? Mm -hmm. It took me an entire year of doing research before I built up the nerve to actually start caring for the bees. But the real driver for it was just this idea that we have got to do something. Yep. We don't know at the time what was calling, causing colony collapse, but something has to be done. And so to put bees in an environment where it's very safe, which is where we live in, in the Bay Area, seemed like the right place to start. Yeah. Okay, cool. So it was a combination of your just lifelong interest in bugs and the the re, the, the the awareness of this this urgent need that we had with regards to the collapse and just the environmental stuff and and wanting to do something yourself. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean my wife probably wouldn't have liked it if I would have cared for spiders or something. Yeah. So bees are a little nicer. Bees are nicer. They, they stay outside. They also. stay outside. All right, so I'm just going to throw out um I know I just read those two articles or referenced those two articles, but I also want to just quickly before I turn it more over to you, throw out a few Wikipedia facts that I found mm. about bees. Cause I like to, when there's a subject that's this sort of clear cut and I can actually take a look on Wikipedia, I like to just throw out some facts or find out some facts. So what I found, you'll probably know most of these already, but um, I didn't and a lot of viewers and listeners hopefully won't either. Okay. There are, according to Wikipedia, there are over 16,000 known species of bees in seven recognized biological families. So 16,000 species, a lot of bees. They are found on every continent except Antarctica in every habitat on the planet that contains insect pollinated flowering plants. Human beekeeping or apiculture, 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 apiculture uh, has been practiced for millennia since at least the times of ancient Egypt and ancient Greece. So this is not something new, modern. This has been around. Well, actually, depictions of humans collecting honey from wild bees from wild bees date to 15,000 years ago. Efforts to domesticate them are shown in Egyptian art around 4,500 years ago. Jars of honey were found in the tombs of Pharaoh. So again, this goes way back. Beekeepers collect honey, which we know, but also beeswax, propolis, pollen, and royal jelly from hives, which we're going to also talk about. And bees, of course, are also kept to pollinate crops. The last fact that I will mention here is that from the 18th century, European understanding of the colonies and biology of bees allowed the construction of the movable comb hive so that honey could be harvested. And I think that Slovenian fellow that I just mentioned was instrumental in that, if I'm not mistaken. So it was really in the 18th century. Uh, so, that, yeah. So, again, the 1700s, when we figured out how to do the hives and start moving them around and have a little more, that much more intimate relationship with them, it sounds like. Okay. So... We know that, that uh, we need bees because they pollinate, but can you tell us a little bit more about um, why is there this urgency and why, why do we need bees sort of a, from, from your perspective as a beekeeper? Yeah, it's interesting because pollination is what everyone looks at immediately. Right. But the bees, their primary objective, of course, is to they create honey so that they'll have food for the winter. They create uh, what is called bee bread, which is pollen that's stuffed into the cells and not turned into honey. And effectively, they're this ecosystem in this life cycle unto themselves. Right. Right. So the importance from a cultural standpoint is that the bees are completely linked with the survival of the human race. Right. And people don't understand that. And I know in the Bay Area, when we say something like that, people will say, oh, it's West Coast hippies. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is you can look at places like China. China has almost eradicated their bee population. Really? Something probably not in the Wikipedia article is there are many regions in China where they actually manually pollinate one flower at a time, which is what would normally be happening by bees. Because they have to. They have to because the bee population has effectively left. Wow. It's been poisoned basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what That's we've scary. got is we've just got this link between our survival and the bees' survival. Right. Right. So uh, one fact that I saw that was pretty uh, potent was the USDA, and I saw this in a few places, actually, but the USDA says that one out of every three bites of food 
just to sort of give us an image, in the United States depends on honeybees and other pollinators. Um, which is, so we're talking about one third of what we eat. And they said, including more than 130 fruits and vegetables. So again, there's lots more beyond that, but I think that's just a nice visual to, um, as you go to have your meal tonight, every other, every third bite, you can thank a bee for that. Um, so you mentioned a second ago, and I do want to talk about this a little more because again, it's a big news item, but it also shows the, the, the gravity of the situation. And that's the, the colony collapse disorder. So can you tell us just a little more about that? What is that? Um, why, why did it send the alarm bells? And where are we kind of now with that? Sure. So the first thing to understand is that a colony is a group of bees, right? People will look at a hive. A hive is actually just where they live. Mm -hmm. So the colony itself is the population of the bees. In the hive. In, if within it's, the if hive. it's a hive. Exactly. Right, right. So the, the hive is the home. The colony right. is... The people. The residents. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so what ended up happening a few years back was that one farmer blew the whistle. And he was a, a guy in the U.S. and the South. And all of a sudden he realized that his bees were just dying in massive quantities. And what happens is the people who run the apiaries, what they'll do is they'll rent out their beehives throughout the year and the bees will work as pollinators within the fields. And we see them when we drive up and down the highways here, right. big white boxes of the traditional Langstroth hives that are out in the fields. Right. So he noticed that his bees were dying in mass and he immediately raised the flag and said, what is going on here? Well, it turned out that had been happening in several places around the world, mm -hmm. but no one talked about it. Mm -hmm. And when they finally interviewed all these other farmers who had lost, or these apiaries who had lost all their bees, they didn't say anything because they felt shame. They felt that they had done something wrong, uh -huh. right? Yeah. So all of a sudden science starts to dig in and science says, what is actually causing this? And what's come about, and we've learned this over the last say six to eight years, is that it is chemical based. Mm -hmm. So what ends up happening is the causes are chemical the based. causes are chemical based. Right. So what ends up happening is that the farmers have to spray pesticides, herbicides, insecticides on the plants, right? There are several companies. We won't mention them by name because I don't think we want lawsuits that, and everybody knows specializes. Right. Yeah. It's the same people that brought us agent orange. Right. So they specialize in creating these compounds and they use it now as treatment. Well, what ends up happening is the EPA in the U.S. will deem it as bug safe, bee safe, et cetera. Right. Safe, safe is an interesting word because I'm not going to take a glass of their elixir and drink it. Right. right? Or it vaporize it in your home. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But what they said is we can basically live with the amount of casualties that we see. Right. Mm -hmm. We'll call that safe. Yeah. And it was given to these farmers to use on their crops. The farmers were supposed to use only one type at a time. The farmers ended up layering. So mm. all of a sudden you've got one herbicide, one pesticide, one insecticide that are all quote unquote safe by themselves. And they're using multiple because they have different purposes. Mm. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is uh, these GMO based seeds. Some of them ended up getting coated ahead of time. And it was on purpose. They said, let's actually coat the seed and we'll grow in all of those defenses within the plant itself. Oh, wow. uh -huh. And so as the bees and birds and, and butterflies, butterflies, right. Yep. They would get into it and it turned out that they actually, their immune system couldn't handle it. Right. So what's happened to date since we found all of this out is there's been a lot of fighting about is the science real, et cetera. And are we, are, we're largely talking about, I suspect, and I'm going to try to say this, the neonicotinoids? Neonicotinoids. Is that the main thing that yes. we're talking about here? So the, what, what you'll hear a lot. It's a family, I think, of, of It's herbicides. a family, and you'll hear the, uh, the glossophates and whatnot. Right, and those two. Yeah. that ties into that family yep. right, of chemicals. Yep. So what ended up happening during Obama era is in the U.S., a lot of bans were put in place. The EPA was actually sued. And so the EPA lost a major lawsuit saying that they just did not protect wildlife, hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So Obama era law went into place to ban all these substances. And most recently under a new administration, let's just call it that, mm -hmm. these bans were actually rolled back. Mm -hmm. The good news is several of these garden centers that we know by name, the biggest one of all being Ace Hardware. Mm -hmm they have voluntarily taken most of this off of their shelves. Oh, great. Great. Okay. All right. And I, because in Europe, I know that they're way ahead of us in outlawing mm -hmm. these, these chemicals. And I saw when I was researching for today, it said that certain states have enact, enacted some laws, but at a national level, like you said, a lot of that's been rolled back. Yeah. And 
so it becomes more of a grassroots thing to to get the 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 vendors the the retailers to take those sorts of actions so it's great that that there's some progress in that area but uh but yeah scary okay so thank you for that and you just mentioned another thing that that's of interest so a lot of times when we're driving down the highway we do see these these commercial or these yeah commercial commercially managed hives um I thought, can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Because I, when I learned about that the first time, I was surprised at kind of, they move them around. Mm -hmm. Can you just talk a, just briefly about that? Because a lot of people probably wouldn't realize that, or at least I didn't realize that. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's a symbiotic relationship between the farmer and, and the bee owner, right? And so what ends up happening is the farmer farms. The bee keeper raises bees. They don't want to actually move into each other's field because that is their whole life that's spent perfecting one discipline. Mm -hmm. So the farmer will actually contract out and the beekeepers, you'll see them, they'll have 18 wheelers, these yeah. big old yeah. huge trucks. It's impressive. Full of yeah. these hives and they'll take the hives and they'll move them from location to location. But what it is, is it's seasonal. Because if you think about where they're going, a farm grows a specific food, a specific time of the season. So what they'll do is they'll map out their whole calendar to say what's in season. They'll arrange with those farmers and they'll move the hives between them. Yep. And this might seem like a silly question, but the bees don't care that they're being moved around because they're they're coming back home. The bees do care. They do so care. What okay. ends up happening? That's, that's what I was always wondering. About. When I found yeah. out that they were moving around like that, I thought, well, I guess if the bees are going back to their their boxes, their hives, I guess that's why it's working. But it still seemed like it would throw them off a little bit. Yeah. So, there, there's a saying called two feet or two miles. Right. If you're uh -huh. going to move a beehive two feet, you may as well move it two miles. Uh -huh. So what will end up happening is it's actually worse for an urban beekeeper to take their hive and to move it over, you know, a couple feet, a few feet for some reason, because the bees won't rehome. Really? They won't actually. Normally what happens is when they first leave the hive, they fly out, they turn around and they look and they say, hey, there's my home. God, right? I love this. Uh, it's That's so, so fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> but if they are moved only a couple feet, they won't rehome and they actually won't find their hive. They won't find where they live. It turns out though, if you move them 20 miles, if you move them 50 miles, then what will happen is they know they're nowhere near where they started. They will rehome back to those hives. Wow. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. And we're going to talk about the dancing in a little bit. Because that's my favorite thing about the bees. And a lot of people probably know about that. But when mm -hmm. I first heard about that, I was, again, blown away. So let's talk, though, about uh, beekeeping. And you mentioned when we were um, having exchanges before the show, you just made an allusion to modern beekeeping. And so I was just curious what you meant. How is beekeeping today fundamentally different than in the past? Are you talking when you are you comparing it to ancient times or did you mean something more specific by that? I was well, curious. It is a comparison to ancient times. Okay. But, but what's happened is uh, the modern hive actually it's called a Langstroth hive. It came mm -hmm. out in 1852 okay. was the patent and it wasn't from our Slovenian friend. Mm -hmm. It was from L.L. Langstroth, who was a reverend yep. out in the Midwest, uh -huh. and he patented in 1852 the hive that we see today. Yeah. What he found out was that if a bee had a space of about three-eighths of an inch between any two objects, the bee would draw a comb on it and they would basically lay their brood in there as well as put their honey in there. But if the space was a quarter inch or less, they would fill it with propolis, which uh -huh. is like the waxy substance. To try to fill in the gap. Exactly. And that's yeah. what they do in nature, right? They'll yeah. fill in the gaps in a log so they don't get other critters in there, but also they control the wind flow in the environment, the temperature yeah. that way. Yeah. So. Langstroth called it the B space. Mm -hmm. And he said, great, let's put in. And what we'll do is we'll create up to 10 frames in there with this three eighths of an inch gap. And the bees loved it. Yeah. And so that it was the major fundamental change between everything that had happened before, which is mostly natural beekeeping. Mm -hmm. And that is robbing honey out of forests. It's Winnie yeah. the Pooh. Yeah. Yeah. Winnie the Pooh. Um, okay. So why would so we've talked about honey and we've talked about some of the, re, the the big picture reasons why we need bees why bees matter but why would i start keeping bees today and you said you started keeping because you wanted to to help the population that was part of your part of your motivation what other reasons or is that the main motivation motivation that someone would want to keep bees today it's for honey and just to help bolster the population is there more or is that kind of the main is that the crux of it 
the odd thing is it's very social as well. Uh -huh. I mean, you and I are talking right now. We're talking about bees. Right? Thanks to the bees. We yeah, have the bees to, to the thank. Bees. Uh -huh. But also, look at my life right now. I call them my grandkids. We we worked with foster children for years. And okay, so I... I oh, no. When you go. said No, when you said you've got grandkids, <laughs> I thought, I didn't know you had grandkids. Well, okay, so the bees are the grandkids? No, no, no. So You do have so, grandkids. Well... They're not our natural children. So first oh, of all, yeah. we didn't have our own kids, but I don't answer the door on Father's Day. Uh -huh. But still, I don't think we had any kids. So uh -huh. my wife worked <laughs> with foster kids for uh -huh. about 10 years, yeah. and they are kind of like our children, even right. though we weren't foster parents. Right, right, right. Their right. children, we call our grandkids. Okay, gotcha. So gotcha. it's very social, which is you actually get to interact with a number of people as well. So on a personal level, it's incredibly fulfilling, not just from the natural causes. Yep, yep. Okay, so let's say I want to be social, I want my own honey, and I want to bolster the bee population. I want to give them a help. I want to help them out. Where do I start? You start by finding a friend who will give you equipment. That's the easiest way. Getting equipment, okay. Yeah. So the equipment itself, um, you can buy it all new, but you would be amazed at how many beekeepers there are in the Bay Area where yeah. we live. Yeah, yeah. And so the first thing is if you get into one of the clubs, they will talk to you about it. And there's regional clubs for every single one of the municipalities around here. Okay. So you can do research that way. The other thing is there are so many books about beekeeping. It's unbelievable. But now that we've got our friends at YouTube where we're broadcasting right now, there's online communities as well as a ton of different beekeepers with good information on it. Yeah. So just the research aspect is the first way to say, do I really want to do this? Yeah. Once you've made the decision that you do want to do Because you said it, it took you a year to decide that you really wanted to go through with it. I am very slow on the uptake. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But you've got to go get the bees. That's the main thing. And where so do I do that? You, there's two ways of doing it. Mm -hmm. So the best bees are free bees. I mean, that's why they say freebie, right? Uh, anyway, free, seriously? free bees. Is that where it comes from? No, no. it's not. Because so, <laughs> that would work. <laughs> in this case. Yeah, yes. that would work. Yeah. Yes. Uh, free bees are ones that are a colony that comes in from a remote area and they'll swarm and we can talk about that in a few minutes but what will end up happening is a group of bees easiest thing is if they're hanging off of a tree you know that the queen is right in the middle of that huge cluster the clusters around the queen to protect, to protect it a yeah. few of the bees are out scouting for a new place to live it's as very easy as shaking them into a box and closing the lid and then what they'll do is they'll actually do something called the, the march where they walk they'll walk from that box into your hive and now all of a sudden you have bees. Seriously? Yeah. That's the easiest thing possible. Okay, wait. How do they know? Okay. Well, first of all, two things, two big things. One is you just said, all you have to do, quote, is take them off the branch and put them into a box. Yes. So that sounds, uh, that sounds sort of death defying. I mean, are they, I mean, aren't they coming at you? Aren't they trying to protect the queen? No. So what ends up happening is uh, this gets into the whole world of uh, bee stings, right? That yes. conversation. Yes. Uh, the bees, when they're established and they're in a colony, and let's say in a hive in my case, yep. they work from sunup till sundown. They're mm -hmm. working office hours, right? Worker bees. And they're worker bees for a reason. Yeah. They're out foraging. And what they're doing is they're grabbing nectar, they're grabbing pollen. With that, if you interrupt them during their workday, they get cranky. Uh -huh. That's when you're going to get stung uh -huh. when they're hanging off of a tree branch they're not working they're in survival mode really? because what they're doing is they're looking for a new home so the bees themselves that big huge ball is pretty docile uh-huh really yeah they're in protection mode, but different protection mode yeah and there aren't guardian bees that are supposed to go on the attack if if some something comes after them the guard bees will happen once they find the new once home. they find the new home that's fascinating okay so that was the first question the second question was so you're saying, so I've, I've pulled them off the branch. They happily go into the box. They're not, they're docile because they're tired from mm -hmm. a long day. I take them and I put them next to my hive. They get out of the box and walk to the hive. How do they make that connection? Hey, there's our hive. Yeah. So if you, you can actually, it doesn't hurt the bees if you flip the box over and you shake the, shake the box into the hive, okay, which yeah. is what you're going to do with the majority of the bees. And right? they just recognize right, right away, hey, this is our kind of environment. Yeah. They're this looking works. for a dark, safe place. Yeah. That's it. A bug on my nose. Speaking oh, of bugs. <laughs> hopefully it's not a bee. <laughs> hopefully it's not a bee. Yeah. yeah. So if you leave that box open now and say tilt it on its side, 
majority of the bees you just dumped into the hive, what will happen is they actually communicate with each other mm -hmm. and the rest of them will start what's called the march. They'll start actually walking into the hive. So cool. Now, if you can't get the freebies, as we're calling it, yeah. uh, there are plenty of places. I go to a place called Bee Kind in Sebastopol. The guy, Doug, who runs it, great guy. Fish tacos next door are amazing. Uh -huh, but you uh -huh. can buy them in what's called a nucleus or a package, which is basically a group of bees. Okay. And... Two similar questions, or actually the same question about two different things. Is there? Are we just talking about one? There's the honeybee, period, or are there different species? Would I get different bees in Northern California, Southern California versus the Midwest, or is there really just one honeybee that we're working with? So the most common bees that you'll see out here are the honeybee, which there's a huge variety of honeybees, right? And you'll see bumblebees. But, you, but they, they don't produce honey. Bumblebees do not. Right, and right. also, if you get stung by a bumblebee, it is so much worse than oh, really? a bumblebee. Oh, yeah. yes. Uh -huh. uh, you'll see carpenter bees. Carpenter bees right. look a lot like a bumblebee, mm -hmm. right? Large mm -hmm. and black, a little bit smaller than, than the bumblebee. Yeah. Uh, and you'll see sweat bees. And sweat bees will be like the really thin ones that have somewhat of a green coloration to them. No, I've had the iridescent green. Yeah, those are sweat I, on, bees. On my... On my um, on my deck. Yeah, they're yeah. gorgeous. Yeah, they're beautiful. Up close. Yeah. So those four are probably the most common you're going to see. Now, within the honeybees themselves, though, what you have is you have various varieties. And the two that we are going to see most are going to be Italian honeybees and Russian honeybees. Oh, really? Yeah. So we don't, we don't have uh, indigenous North American honeybees? Uh, I'm sure that we've got some mixture, but, but I know what, what we, I know what you're going to end up best or whatever. I know what you're going to end up getting, like, especially if you buy them is probably gonna be one of those two. Yeah. And then, okay. So thank you for that. So basically we've got two kind of varieties of bees that we have honeybees that we might be working with. And then what about, you said there's the Langstrom hive, but then there are other types of hives as well. And yeah. is that, is that, is there some critical decision-making that if you're getting into it, you've got to decide what kind of hive is that? A safe assumption. Yeah, there's uh, there's four main kinds of hive, only two that we're actually going to see here in the U.S. Okay. All right. So the Langstroth is the most common. This is the square one that we've talked about right. earlier. Right. And the construction of it is it's effectively a square and it's got 10 frames inside where the bees are going to lay their eggs, put their honey, etc. Yep. The next one is actually called the horizontal hive. And this is the one I'm going to be building this summer. Uh -huh, uh -huh. The horizontal hive is phenomenal. It has, uh, it looks like a chest and it has a lid that pops open. And the benefit to that is you can pull one hive frame out at a time. With the Langstroth, you stack them. So mm -hmm. all of a sudden with the honey, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little yes, bit. Yes, we will. You can have, you can have 70 to 100 pounds on that one hive. And oh. if you've got four hives stacked, to get to the bottom to inspect that bottom hive, you're lifting Tricky. a lot of weight, moving yeah. a lot, disrupting the bees. Where the horizontal hive, you don't have to do that. You can pull one frame at a time for inspections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. The next two, one's called a, a Waré, which was a French abbot uh -huh. uh, that uh -huh. also took a look at the natural world the same way that Langstroth did and said, I think we should make something that's much more like a round log. So what he did was he made a square hive. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that looks like a round log. I was going to say, yeah, it seems yeah, okay. Yeah. And they're different sizes. It looks like an inverted pagoda. It's right? not like round inside. That's no, not, no, no, no. He, I've never Somehow seen he one. feels like it resembles a, a log a, though. Yeah. Well, the French, they're my people. Yeah. Maybe that's what they, there think, you go. So. Okay. Uh, uh, the last one's just called a top bar hive and a mm -hmm. top bar hive is almost identical to, uh, to a horizontal hive, except for rather than having frames, it only has the top bar which means that the bees will draw all the comb to actually make the frame themselves. Okay. And you'll see that sometimes. Yeah. Not as much. Okay. So once I've got my bees and once I've chosen my hive, which it sounds like it's probably not that difficult of a choice, um, how much am I going to have to be working on this? I mean, the bees, they seem pretty self-sufficient, but then, and I mean, of course, to gather honey, I'm going to have to, but just to keep the hive going, not talking about actually harvesting the honey, is there, is there a lot that you've got to do day to day or are they pretty self-sufficient? They're pretty self-sufficient. So yeah. when you first get the hive up and functioning, the bees need something to eat. They actually don't eat honey, honey unless it's in the winter, right? They oh, really? eat yeah. nectar and they eat pollen, right? Right. They'd rather right. have it fresh. Well, mm -hmm. I have frozen when you can have it fresh. There you go. So at the start, you may need to feed them and you end up feeding them a, a sugar water syrup, Okay. right? That's just to get them started. That's usually no more than a week. 
Mm-hmm. What'll end up happening is they become very self-sufficient. You'll only go in the hive generally about once a month after that. Oh, really? Because really what you're doing is you're looking to say, have they drawn out so much comb that they're going to become space constrained? Mm-hmm. Because if they do, they're going to leave, mm-hmm. right? So you have to make sure that they've got plenty enough room to grow, but not too much where they can't keep it warm. Yeah. So there's this balancing act of let's take a look at the capacity. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that there's two really nasty critters. One's called a hive beetle and one's called a varroa mite. Yeah, I kept seeing the, the the mite referenced. Yeah. Yeah. So you actually posted out a really amazing video from National Geographic that showed mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a bee turning into larva and then hatching. Yep. Well, in that video, because I'd seen that several times, yeah. there's three bees that didn't hatch. Uh-huh. And really quickly, there's a hive beetle that runs across the frame. Oh, seriously? And the hive beetle, what it will do is it will suck the blood out of the larva. Ooh. And basically, it's stillborn. Right? Oh, God, yeah. Well, the varroa mite's even worse because the varroa mite lives within the cell while the bee's being born oh. and actually will burrow into the bee's body sometimes oh, and God. eat it from the inside. Oh, God. So, I, I, <laughs> wow. It, this yeah. is the natural world. Yeah, buddy, seriously, it's vicious. Yeah. So, what it's you end vicious, up doing wow. is you end up checking for those and, if need be, treating for them. Yeah. Yeah. And how, how do you treat for them? Well, most people actually will use, it's, uh, I hate to say it, it's almost like chemical. chemotherapy. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's chemical. I don't treat hives ever yep. because I figure they're either going to be strong or they're going to be weak. Yep. I don't want to mess with it. And just let them, natural selection sort mm-hmm. of, yep. So what about uh, the differences between, so now I've got my, my bees set up and let's say I live in a suburb or even in the city. I'm not out in a rural area where I have all this land and all this space. What are some of the different considerations and constraints for doing it in an area that's, that's more populated? Very first thing is you are liable for your bees. And they're not like a dog. You don't uh-huh. get to go chase them. The, right. the bees will fly up to three kilometers to go collect pollen and really? nectar. Yeah. So they're in neighborhoods all around you. Yeah. The common courtesy in your municipality, your city will have different laws. I wondered if there were laws. Yeah. Where I live in Oakland, there's no laws at all. Okay. Right. It's Uh the wild west. Uh So there's no laws. But what I did was I walked around to all of my neighbors because my concern is someone in that household is allergic. Mm. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's the case. EpiPen or whatever you want to use. Yeah. So I let them know I'm keeping bees. Yeah. And it's, it's a safety issue at that point. Yeah. I didn't think about the allergy. Yeah. Yeah. It's very nice to go to them with a jar of honey because then they're much more cooperative. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You bribe them. Yeah. Yeah. But other than that, generally there's not much other consideration. Did you get any pushback when you went door to door? No. What I ended up hearing was that's great. Can my kids watch? Which uh is like, no, your kids can't watch. Yeah. Or a lot of stories of how they knew people that kept bees. Uh Uh-huh. Interesting. Because I volunteered, this was a few years ago. I volunteered. There was a temporary on a vacant lot that's no longer there. There was a temporary garden Mm -hmm. and it was to teach kids and locals about gardening and, and they brought in some hives well, the hives got vandalized. Mm. And so I thought, you know, my reaction to that was, well, what, what are the neighbors weren't happy to have the hives there? And I thought, well, what's the, is it just, is it as simple as people being afraid of getting stung? Mm-hmm. Is there, or is there more to it? No, they're there's... just afraid they've just been demonized that they're these aggressive creatures when really, unless you have an allergy, of course, which is different. That'd be different if I might die from a bee sting and there was a hive next to where I'm living that I, that I understand, but the average unallergic citizen it's just this this idea that we have of them being more aggressive or whatever than they actually are. Yeah, I yeah. think it boils down to that. The interesting yep. thing is a lot of people don't really know the difference between a bee and a wasp. Well, actually, that was a question I had earlier that we skipped over. So why don't you tell us? Sure. Yeah. So you've got, uh, they're all part of the same family, which mm-hmm. is fascinating. But mm-hmm. if you've got a, a hornet or a wasp, yep. right, they actually don't have barbs on their stingers. Mm-hmm. So what will end up happening is, and that's the term stitching someone up. Because it's like a sewing machine. Mm. They can just keep, keep stinging doing it, yeah. you over Ugh. and over and over. Right. Uh, the queen bee in honeybees doesn't have a stinger, right? Or, or sorry, barbs on her stinger. Okay. She has a stinger, but no barbs. Oh, really? Yes. And that's for a specific purpose we can talk about. But mm-hmm. all the other ones, they do have a barb. And so what will end up happening is the bees are not really looking to sting anyone because once they do, the barb sticks, it rips out the back of their abdomen and they die. They die, right. Yeah. So they don't have a big incentive to stay. No, they're yeah. actually a lot more docile than people would think. Yeah. I think it's just lack of information. Yep. Yep. Uh, what about one thing that there might be? I don't know if there's a lack of information. This might be a case where it's actually warranted, the concern, and that's the Africanized bees. So can you just touch really quickly on, because we hear a lot about 
oh, you know, there was an Africanized swarm and you got to be careful. And are they, are they something that really we do need to be careful of? Or what's, what's the deal with the Africanized ones that we sometimes hear about? Yeah. So they were bred uh, in South America for their honey-making capability. Mm-hmm. Very sturdy. And actually, one of the swarms that flew into my hive, I'm pretty sure was Africanized. But realistically, they made it up as far as the border of Mexico. And then I guess maybe our new wall worked or something. Yeah. But must they have been the wall. Yeah, uh-huh. it must have been the wall. Yeah. Uh, they didn't really go past Arizona. Okay. So all of the scare that we heard 20 years ago and then 10 years ago, there are some. But what ends up happening is... Bees only live, the the worker bees, they only live 23 days. Really? 23 days. Oh, that's sad. So what ends up happening is you've got generation after generation after generation. And so some of those traits end up getting bred out of the generations. So what was 20 years ago in South America, which was a highly aggressive bee, by the time it's up here now, 20 years later, is going to be a lot more docile anyway. Because now it's bred again with the locals yeah. and the, the Africanized aggressive part has been sort of bred out. Well, especially if they were the Italian bees, they're pretty mellow. You know? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Because yeah. that, that joie de vivre or that... Uh, Ciao bella. Or uh, what's the farniente, that, that expression. <laughs> okay. Uh, so we've kind of danced around this, if you will, uh, but bee colonies. So it's one of the fascinating things. And like I said, we've kind of touched on different aspects, but tell us a little bit more about how the colony itself is structured. We know about the queen, we know worker bees, but can you tell us a little bit more about how, how that structure works sure. internally? Because it's, again, there's so much fascinating stuff there. Yeah, there's a hierarchy and it's funny because you always hear queen bee, the queen rules the roost yeah. as if it was a rooster. Right. Uh, and what ends up happening is the queen does rule supreme until she doesn't. And uh-huh. I'll explain that in a minute. Uh-huh. So there's worker bees and the worker bees have jobs. There's sanitation bees, there's foragers, there's sentry slash guard bees. Uh, there's nurse bees. There's nurse bees, yeah. which take care of all the larvae. Yep. Just like in human society, those are all female. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Interesting. <laughs> and just like in human society, there's the male bee, which is the drone, that all it does is lay around like a slob all day, getting fed <laughs> by the workers, uh-huh. and its only job is to mate with the queen, right? Interesting. So what ends up happening is the queen is responsible for regulating the colony itself. How many worker bees versus how many drones and making sure of the health of it. If the queen starts failing, because a queen usually lives between five and seven years. If okay. the queen is not laying eggs, yeah. or if the bee colony itself thinks that the, ha- the hive is un- uninhabitable, what they'll do is they'll create these new cells called supersedure cells or, or escape cells. And they're effectively new queen cells. Mm-hmm. They're much larger than a regular cell because the queens are larger. A cell within the, the, the honeycomb. Or, yes. Yeah, and yeah. usually it's at the bottom, but mm-hmm. it can be in the middle. Um, but the queen will lay new eggs in there. And the worker bees will feed that new egg royal, royal jelly, jelly. Uh-huh. which is crazy enough. It's secreted from the feet of the bees, right? It's so so yeah. normally they'll feed nectar, pollen, etc., to the regular bees, only royal jelly to the queen bees. Mm-hmm. And what will end up happening is a queen will emerge. Well, they never have just one queen cell. They'll mm-hmm. lay multiples, three, four. Uh-oh. And the new queen emerges. Trouble brewing. Trouble yeah. brewing. Yep. She does something called trumpeting, which means she makes this noise and only queen bees will respond to her. And so the original queen bee will respond going, hey, buddy. <laughs> she goes and snuffs her immediately. Oh, no. right? Hey, this is nature. God, this is vicious. And then the queen bee, <laughs> the new queen bee will go and snuff every unborn queen bee because they trumpet back to her. Right. Which is why her stinger has no barbs. Interesting. Yeah. So what the queen will do, though, is typically what you've got in the hive itself is you have a brood chamber, which is where she lays all of her eggs. Yeah. And then what will end up happening is you have honey. And the honey will get stored generally in the upper chambers. So if you're using the Langstroth that we've talked about, yep. you're going to add boxes. And what will happen is the queen will then keep all of the brood low down and they'll put all the honey at the top. Mm-hmm. Makes it easier to harvest. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. So I just realized... Um, that we actually can get comments on YouTube. So like I said, I just, cause I had half of the screen hidden. So I just, Aaron has chimed in and given me the Italian expression that I was missing. Il dolce di fare niente. That is the expression <laughs> I was thinking of. So thank you, Aaron, for that. And thanks for tuning in for the first time on YouTube. Okay. So within the hive, and so we've talked about a lot of the different roles and I'm just, again, it's just, we could go on and on about how complex it is and how they interact. It's just fascinating, but thank you for that overview. But another thing that they do and you've, you've mentioned that they communicate that I just, this just blew me away. And this is 
one of the main reasons I got so fascinated when I heard this, the waggle dance. Mm. So tell everyone who might not already know what the waggle dance is. Uh, and, and if you can do a demonstration, that would be fantastic as well. Perfect. So the waggle dance, it, it truly is fascinating. And if you find a video of it, it is great to see because you could actually dub in probably like Sir Mix-a-Lot. Uh-huh, right? uh-huh, I like uh-huh. big butts as they're shaking. <laughs> uh-huh. So the waggle dance is the way that the bees communicate to tell the rest of the colony where the best foraging is. That's the primary purpose of it. They do it for a few other reasons, but it's primarily for out and gathering food. Source. I just can't believe, like it would be hard for me, obviously, to tell you how do you even get to Dolores Park from here and which part of Dolores Park I mean, I could tell you that because we've got names for it, but just visually to communicate by telling you to go that far and then turn left and turn right. So to think that these little creatures with brains the size of whatever can communicate by dancing, it just blows my mind. Yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating. And <laughs> it just blows it's, it's my an mind. entire language. The funny yeah. thing is we know why they do it. We still can't interpret it. Oh, we don't know what the different... We haven't decoded no, it. No, we haven't ah, decoded it. It's like the Enigma machine or something. Interesting. Well, one thing that I did get off Wikipedia that isn't the decoding, but I thought was interesting is... This is a quote, um, again, from Wikipedia, and it's talking about the ethnologist Carl von Frisch, Frisch however you say that. Uh, he studied the navigation in the honeybee. He shows that they communicate by the waggle dance. But he said... Um, he demonstrated that bees can recognize a desired compass direction by uh, just, in three different ways. By the sun, by the polar polarization pattern of the blue sky, which again is mind-boggling, and by the Earth's magnetic field. He showed that the sun is the preferred or main compass. The other mechanisms are used under cloudy skies or inside a dark beehive. So uh, bees navigate using spatial memory with a, quote, rich map-like organization. So it's just, it's just astonishing. It's just astonishing. Okay. I was going to ask you if colonies ever get too big. And it sounds like the answer is yes, if you're not tending to them and making sure that that doesn't happen. They do. It's yeah. actually a good thing, though. Yeah, because uh, then they branch off and go form their own. Well, yeah, it's called yeah. a split. And yeah. so all of a sudden, that one hive that you have, if you do it correctly, and if you're lucky, mm-hmm. you'll have multiple hives. And they'll stay around if you've got a home waiting for them, basically? Yeah, if, if you've split it correctly. There's a lot of ways to split it. But if the split is successful, you'll end up with two where you had one. So again, freebies. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. Threats to the colonies. We talked about the mites. We talked about the uh, that beetle. What about animals? Uh, cold, wet. Are there environmental things you've got to be careful of? You know, and then and speaking of the environment, what about during the winter? So I just threw three questions at you. Mm. But any animals you've got to worry about, particularly. You know, do raccoons get in there or do most? Oh, do they? Yeah, Yeah, raccoon is is primary because raccoon isn't just it's not it's not, you know, looking for honey, a bear. Right. Something like that. Right. Right. What ends up happening is the raccoons actually eat the bees. Yeah. Yeah. And so what they'll do is if you have a traditional hive, a Langstroth hive, they will shake the hive and wait at the entry to where the bees will fly out to see what's going on. They'll just eat them. (laughs) And. So you That's basically, you're best off if you strap the hive down, or you'll see many times people just put a big rock on the top. And that so raccoons actually can't, can't shake, shake it. them. Uh, but there are environmental issues. So what ends up happening, and it's not just the pesticides, right? Let's yep. talk about the natural environment. Yep. The bees, first of all, they can get too cold. Mm-hmm. So there's different types of bottom boards on these hives. There's screened ones, which let in airflow. But if you have it in an area where you've got direct wind hitting the entrance of the hive, they can get too cold, in mm-hmm. which case, you know, they won't die off, but they'll leave, right? Okay, right, right. They can get too hot, and that is the reason that we paint hives very light colors. Oh, really? You don't see black to reflect? hives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Because of the fact that it would overheat the bees inside. Uh-huh. But also, in the rain, again, the facing of the opening for the hive is critical. If there's driving rain, sideways rain that we get here in the Bay Area every winter, yeah. and it's going into the hive, what will happen is <laughs> it will create mildew and mold throughout mm-hmm. the hive. And mm-hmm. even though they can clean the hives, mm-hmm. if it's wintertime, it's not going to let up. Yeah. So those are the environmental they can't things. can't keep up. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about honey. Mm-hmm. So uh, why do bees make honey? I think you already said that this is to get through the winter. That's why, they, that's why they're making the honey. And they don't actually eat it during... And then um, we take it and they make more. And, and then we feed them in the winter, I guess, if, to make sure... If we, if, or do you, do you leave enough honey for the bees when the season, like, how does that work? 
Yeah. Because you're, you're taking the honey, but then, of course, you want your bees to survive. So you just wait towards the end of the season. You start harvesting and stop harvesting and let the bees keep what's left. Is that how that so works? Or? That's primarily how it happens. What ends up driving when you're going to harvest the honey is that there's a peak nectar flow that mm -hmm. happens throughout the year. Mm -hmm. And for us here in the Bay Area, it's usually the end of July or the start of August, which mm -hmm. is why that's when we sell honey. Yep. After that point, when you do the harvest, you usually do not harvest again. So you usually get one harvest per year per hive. Yeah. Now, two years ago, it was a crazy winter. It was really hot. And many of my friends ended up getting harvests in December. Really? Which you never do, hmm. right? And that was like a second harvest? Or? Yeah, yeah, because uh -huh. it wasn't cold, mm -hmm. right? So normally what we do if it's going to be wet is we'll leave it in there for the bees to eat over the winter. Now, you do check still throughout the month to see if they're okay. If they don't have food source, you actually need to augment it somehow. Mm -hmm. But up here- like with the sugar water you said. Yeah, yep. or with, uh, there's these patties. They look like peanut butter, basically. Mm -hmm. Protein patties. Okay. Um, but here it's pretty mild where mm -hmm. we live. Right. So they should be able to forage probably 10 <clears throat> months out of the year. Yeah. And then you're gonna leave them with enough honey where they're more than fine. Yeah, cool, okay. Uh, one thing I want to say about honey, this is kind of random before I go to the next, not, not before I go to the next question, but something again, as I was reading, and I had heard this before that most micro, most microorganisms do not grow in honey. So sealed honey does not spoil even after thousands of years. True, but, but. <laughs> there's always a, but yeah, uh, a waggle dance, but a waggle dance. Uh, water content will cause the honey to crystallize. Yep. So even if it's crystallized, you can, you can just heat it up in a, warm and the crystals bath of water. just de and decrystallize. Yeah, they'll yeah. decrystallize. Yeah. But that's the only time honey doesn't get contaminated that way, but it can change its form. It's, yep. So, okay. So let's say now we, we've got the honey. We've, we've done everything that we've talked about. We've taken good care of our bees. They're really happy. They're very productive. And now it is July, or maybe if we're lucky, it's December. And we're doing our second harvest and we want to get the honey. And so we always see that image of people in like the hazmat suit with the mask <laughs> on and then a smoking gun. So do you still use smoke for that? Or how is there new, more contemporary ways that we do that? How do we harvest? What's, yeah. what's the harvest look like? So the, the smoke, it's funny. There, there's a purpose for the smoke and the smoke actually will drive the bees further down into the hive. Mm -hmm. And the reason you want to do that is because there's, if there's a massive number of bees, on the honey frames, you don't want to take them with you. Right. 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 So you hit the smoke, they'll drive down into the hive. And now what you can do is take those frames out. Mm -hmm. When you take the frames out, you usually are dressed in the suit because yep. you're going to do it during their work day. Uh -huh. Right. <laughs> so you're dressed in the suit, don't get stung. And then you've got to take the caps off of all of the honey frames uh -huh. because what will end up happen is they fill it up with the honey and they cap it over. So the easiest way is you just cut it with a bread knife. That's the easiest way. Yeah. Throw the frames into a centrifuge, spin them, and all of a sudden the honey, because of centrifugal force, will blast out into the sides. Oh, wow. Strain it. So you run these multi, uh, multiple bag systems that go into effectively five-gallon buckets. Mm -hmm. And at that point, with raw honey, there's nothing else you need to do. You can mm -hmm. just throw it in a bottle at that point. Mm -hmm. And then, well, that was another question then. Are there... You said with raw, you specified with raw honey. Do, do we have different types of honey? I know we have different flavors. Like we have orange honey that's been pollinated primarily by orange trees or lavender. We have different flavors, but is it like olive oil where we have different qualities? It's not, is it? Or... It actually is. Okay. And so um, I don't know if there's a realistic or technical grading system. Yeah. We call ours super premium because okay. of the fact that we've planted entire gardens specifically for the honeybees. Okay. Uh -huh. So at that point, we're feeding them all of the foods that they want. Right. So it's a little bit higher Controlling. quality. Controlling. a lot higher right. quality. Right. The stuff that you get in the store, what you've got to be careful with is, let's say that, first of all, you're buying the honey that's in the uh, blown plastic mold the that looks bear. like a bear. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that stuff is swill. That yeah. stuff is bad. Yeah. And Lots of additives and stuff. It's, or... it's well, it's, first of all, it's pasteurized. Oh. So, Honey they, has they pasteurize a, honey? Oh, yeah. So honey has, a, honey has a ton of enzymes in it. It mm -hmm. is so good for you in its raw format. Right. They're basically destroying this. And we just got done saying that you don't have to worry about microbes and things in honey because they don't grow. So what are we killing with the pasteurization? I think it's fear. Once it's again. just fear. You're right. killing it's just fear a perception. with pasteurization. Yeah, exa Ooh, yeah nice. exactly. But yeah, but it is. It's just perception. Yeah. It's not something that makes sense scientifically well, necessarily. If you go into a store and you buy raw honey, it has to be labeled as raw. Mm-hmm. Right. Because otherwise, so they you know worried. the danger. Yeah. The danger of it. Yeah. But even if you get raw honey in a store, 
It's mm-hmm. very different than raw honey that's just been harvested. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you've ever tasted like fresh olive oil right mm-hmm. after the crush. It is, it's hot and spicy, right? really spicy. And people don't realize that. Well, I know that from having good quality olive oil where it's been, oh yeah, this is a very different taste and it is, it's a little spicy, but Mm -hmm. even to your point, you know, I just picked strawberries from my Mm -hmm. deck before I came and just eating them right off of, you know, any vegetable, any fruit, anything in nature that's right from the source you, there's a dramatic difference. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure with honey, it's it's the same. It yeah. is the same. Yeah. And what you're going to get is the the robustness of the flavor. Mm-hmm. It is it is on fire, basically. Mm-hmm. En fuego, that's what we'll call it. En fuego. But what ends up happening is those flavors get mild over time. That's uh-huh. the only point about Oh, the flavors raw. change a little bit over time. Yeah. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So... Honey is one of is the the biggest focus insofar as our relationship with bees and what we're our our relationship with them. But like I said earlier on in the show, there are some other products that we take from them that are worth mentioning. So beeswax, I think people know about. And in the interest of time, I'm going to kind of skip over that. Beeswax, a lot of people know about. Bee pollen, a lot of people know about. Uh, but this propolis was interesting. Mm-hmm. I had never heard of this. Can you touch on what that is and wh- why that's interesting? Yeah, propolis is a secretion that uh, we said before the bees plug up holes with. Yeah. But you can actually chew on propolis and you can eat it and it's still full of the enzymes. Mm-hmm. There's actually another thing which is probably not on your list. Yeah. Which is that for beekeepers, we have bees that die. They live 23 days. Yep. Normally the bees will take them, they'll chuck them outside for something else to eat. Mm-hmm. But when you take the hives apart, you're going to find dead bees. Yes. You can take those dead bees. Uh-huh. You can cook them oh. in a pan yeah. with a little bit of olive oil. Uh-huh. I know what you're thinking. You're not going to eat it. Okay. You're going to throw it into a mortar and pestle, and you're going to crush it, and you can put it on your scalp to grow hair. <gasps> really? I just found this out. We're going to talk afterwards. From a Russian beekeeper. Really? Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk later. I don't know. I think it's probably too late. But maybe it's never too late. I don't know. Okay, well here's what I thought you were gonna say that probably wasn't on my list that I found fascinating, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up. Besides the fact that I think it's amazing that they produce this chemical to fill holes up with and caulking basically. I mean, again, another amazing thing that they do. But um one thing that kind of blew me away, again, Wikipedia, my source for all of this information, they use propolis to mitigate putrefaction. So bees usually carry out waste, uh, mm. usually carry waste out of and away from the hive, like you said a little while ago. However, if a small, this is from Wikipedia, however, if a small lizard or mouse, for example, finds its way into the hive and dies there, bees may be unable to carry it out through the hive entrance because mm-hmm. it's too big, too heavy. In that case, they would attempt instead, I just thought this was so cool, to seal the carcass in propolis, essentially mummifying it and making it odorless and harmless. Wow, I didn't know that either. Isn't that brilliant? That's okay. awesome. The other thing that I'll add, the reason I wanted to bring up propolis, it was purportedly used by Antonio Stradivari in the varnish of his instruments. Another cool fact. This is Another why I go to cool Wikipedia. Fact. There's some cool things out there. Okay, the other product that I wanted to quickly touch on is the Royal Jelly. Mm. And I guess we already talked about, I don't know if there's anything to add here or not, because we already talked about how this is used to, to trigger the development of the queen morphology, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, so I don't know, maybe there's nothing to add to that one. I, humans can eat it. It's incredibly good for humans. Mm-hmm. So I would say that's the only thing we'll add. And how, in uh, what way is it good for humans? Uh, full of enzymes, full of, mm-hmm. uh, natural vitamins and minerals. Yeah. Very okay. healthy. All right. So we love bees. Bees are in peril. Bees need our help. You are doing an amazing thing by actually giving them a home and a, and a habitat. What can, <clears throat> excuse me, what can the rest of us do? I mean, some of us could obviously start our own hives. What else can we do, though, to help the bee population? So the, uh, I hate to bring this into a political spectrum, okay. but obviously your voice uh, is more important probably than your dollars when it comes to beekeeping. Mm-hmm. So the EPA is hugely under attack that we know right, right now. Right. These programs are getting rolled back continuously mm-hmm. and getting some political pressure to actually put these programs back in place mm-hmm. is probably the most important thing you can do. I mean, mm-hmm. it's great if you go to a farmer's market, it's great if you support, support the, the beekeepers local, right. and whatnot, but the political aspect and hate to bring it back to politics, that's by far the most important thing because that's what's going to get these chemicals off mm-hmm. the shelves. That's what's going to change <laughs> these laws for protection. Right. So, that makes perfect sense because these, these chemicals are so dangerous. And like I said, you go to Western Europe and they've mostly been outlawed. Um, and so it's just just stunning that we're rolling these things back. But again, like you said, 
So beyond the, that big step, that very important step, what are some smaller things though that people could do? Planting bee-friendly plants. And does that just mean flowers or is it more specific? Well, the funny thing is uh, I think the bees really like prints or something because anything purple, they just go after. Really? Uh -huh. All right. So uh -huh. if, you, if you hit lavender or if you hit uh, uh, sage, right, if there's something actually called bee bush, which mm -hmm. is, uh, I forget the name of it, fox something. Uh -huh. um, all of those will attract the bees, but okay. also there's goldenrod, which mm -hmm. isn't purple, it's yellow. Yeah, uh, which the monarchs love. Yeah, the monarchs love it. So anything that a bee that likes, left. a butterfly will like as okay. well, and uh -huh. a hummingbird will like. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. So I would say that uh, uh, either you have a garden and you can actually plant it, or uh, you know, there's plenty of places <laughs> in San Francisco you can just drop a few seeds. Right, just drop a few seeds. Actually, outside the Whole Foods in the on at Market and Dolores. They've taken the whole medium strip on Dolores, and I don't know mm -hmm. if Whole Foods did this or if it's a community thing. I can't, I can't tell. And it's a bee garden, and mm -hmm. it is just this massive. It used to just be grass, and it's a big space, and it's just all these flowering, you know. And never mind the aesthetics; it's doing the good for the bees. It's doing, you know, good for the aesthetics. So, so yeah, even in urban spaces like that, there's plenty of opportunities. Mm -hmm. I went to uh, the honeybeeconservancy.org and found a few other things that hadn't necessarily occurred mm. to me. So planting the gardens, the, the bee habitat, protecting bee habitat, that's the other thing, protecting the habitat, enhancing or creating the habitat, avoiding the pesticides. Um, but also they called out that trees are really important for bees because mm. they'll use a lot of the resins from trees, never mind when the trees are flowering. But I just thought it was interesting. The resins are also important. So, because we always think flowers, but actually they really need the trees, which was interesting. Uh, and then uh, bee baths. Are you familiar with that, that idea that you no. can create? Yeah. You create baths and because the bees need water, like mm -hmm. we did talk about earlier. And the idea being particularly where we live, even though now we've made up for lost time for our drought of four or five years, but particularly in areas where there's not a lot of water you create, you just have this, it's like a bird bath, but it's for bees, but you put pebbles in so that the bees can land on the pebbles, stand on the pebble and, and hmm. drink. That's so fantastic. that was a curious idea. Yeah. Start a hive. And then, like you said, um, support local beekeepers. You can also go to the honeybeeconservancy.org and you can sponsor a hive. Oh, that's fantastic. Which is another thing. Yeah. So that looked like, again, I just skimmed that last night when I was preparing for today, but that looked like a great organization. Okay. Um, BCAM project. So I want, this sounds really cool. And so I want to hear about, about this. What is it? Where did you get the idea? And what do you, what's the purpose? Okay. So yeah. the, uh, the idea came, uh, I hate to say it from being a nerd, right? Uh-huh. So own it. Just own it. Own it. Own it. Own yeah. It. So I wanted to see inside of a hive and see a working hive under conditions all day and night. And yeah. I couldn't find anything. Yeah. I absolutely couldn't Which find it. Which is surprising anything. actually. Cause you've got like the yeah. peregrine falcon cams. You've got, we've got, we do that uh -huh. with other species. So you would think that would already be out there. Not out there whatsoever. Yeah. So yeah. Luckily, technology to the rescue technology has these uh, you know the Raspberry Pis and the Arduinos and programmables that happen to have camera systems with it happen to have infrared lighting systems but I started working with some engineers and the first thing they said is well you know that's electromechanical waves which mm -hmm. affects the bees right, right we just talked about how that's one of exactly. their navigational yep and yep. then the next thing they said and what is the spectrum for those IR lights and where is the B spectrum mm -hmm. so the engineers started working on shielding mechanisms and changing the frequencies the nanometers of these IR lights what would work with the cameras wow well in this time frame when the two engineers I'm working with were playing with this uh, I found a paper from uh, this professor Greg at University of London, so all the way across the pond, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. And it was about the effects of infrared on bees, on oh, wow. honeybees. Wow! It mm -hmm. was it was a diamond in the rough. So, 2014, the paper was released. <clears throat> I pinged him. He's still teaching. Great. And he got back to me with some preliminary information, some other white papers, some limited opinion. And once the engineers are done with the B cam, he said, I'll give you a full opinion on how it will affect. Mm -hmm. turns out infrared light is actually really good for the bees. Why is it good for them? He said it reduces the chance of disease. Oh, interesting. Right. But what we have to do is we have to find out that was 15 minute exposures yeah. at a certain frequency. Mm -hmm. We've got to find out what longer term is going to look like. Right, so, right. so what's happening right now is the engineers should actually be done with the prototypes in probably a month and a half to two months. I'm going to get an opinion <clears throat> rendered by me. the professional here mm -hmm. and we're going to install it in one of the hives In one of your hives in one of the hives. Yep. The cool thing is it's not like you flip it on and all the bees die if, if it's bad. Right. What they'll do is they'll say this hive sucks 
And they'll start to head out. And they'll head out, right? Uh -huh, so uh -huh. I'm not going to kill the hive, even if we do something we're not supposed to, which might be why there's no bee camps. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, but I may lose a hive if it turns out it messes with them too yeah, much. Yeah. And then will you, can you do something to mitigate that? Can you have another hive standing by that they'll just head over to that? Or it doesn't work that way? It, it, it does and it doesn't. So yeah. we, we have multiple hives always in case you lose one. Uh -huh, right? Because again, uh -huh. the other will grow. You can split it and you can go back to multiples. Right. Uh, but many times when a bee... Uh, colony swarm they swarm to a branch that's within your yard mm -hmm. so they don't go hopefully too far you'll get lucky yeah. yeah yeah okay cool uh and I'd, let me say before i forget uh the URL, url for that is going to be happybeecam.com but it's, it's not happy. live yet yeah exactly the happy is you're optimistic cautiously yes. optimistic um anything else we need to know about bees protect I think we've them. covered it yeah protect them. them um uh, right into your to your local government entities mm -hmm. to help them out. This has been fascinating, and I can't wait to see. So, how long did you say before you think that the the camp's going to go live? Probably within a couple months. Within a couple months. Okay, so let me know when that happens, and I'll and I'll uh, I'll do a little blast on that because that that sounds fascinating, really interesting. Thank you not only for coming today, but thank you for again the whole YouTube suggestion and uh, for sort of saving the day with that. I really appreciate it, and I love this conversation. I appreciate you coming in to to share your experiences about bees and hopefully hopefully some uh, some other people will get that 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 idea in their own mind and uh, either create a bee bath or start their own hives or go sponsor a hive. So thank you very much. Thank you. All right. So let me just throw out here again. I've got some other uh, other links. Worldbeeday.org is the one that I mentioned at the beginning of the show. A couple that I didn't mention but that Derek shared with me before today's show is scientificbeekeeping.com bsource.com and of course all of this I will I'll put on the, the page for today's show uh, the honeybeeconservancy.org is the one that I just mentioned that had some other great ideas and that you can also go to to sponsor Hive and then uh, of course as Derek mentioned there's so many books and YouTube videos out there uh, to check out and last but not least happybeecam.com is the one that we're all excited about okay that is all for today thanks again to my, de uh, to my guest urban beekeeper Derek Garnier Next week, my guest will be host of the upcoming PBS travel show, Fly Brother, Ernest White II. Thanks to Wordspace Studios for hosting me. They, again, are at wordspacestudios.com. I think that might be .org. I think I might have that wrong. Anyway, Wordspace Studios. Thank you again for watching and listening. If you like the show, would you please share on social media and subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen or watch. I would really appreciate it. It really helps. For more about me, my website is matthewfelix.com and links to my social media, books, other podcasts, including the Porcelain Travels podcast, and all the rest can be found there. If you have any comments, ideas for the show, or just want to say hello, I would love to hear from you at felixonair at matthewfelix.com. Thanks again for watching and listening and have a great week.